The world is constantly changing. Some things that may have been fine to say or do five years ago simply aren't fine anymore. On this episode, how to protect your reputation, and more importantly, how to lead by example through humility, learning, and grace. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 388. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And of course, a big part of being an effective leader is continuing to learn, to grow, to use the right language, and to also be conscious of the complex world that we live in. Today, we're going to have a conversation about how to protect your own reputation, but I think even more importantly beyond that, of how to really set the stage for civility, inclusivity in the workplace, and what are the things that we should be thinking about as leaders in order to set that stage of inclusion. I am so glad to welcome back to the show for her third appearance, Sharon Bar-David. Sharon is a leading Canadian expert on workplace incivility and the author of the book, Trust Your Canary, Every Leader's Guide to Taming Workplace Incivility. She's particularly passionate about her work with abrasive leaders, the highly talented people whose interpersonal style sometimes rubs people the wrong way and creates distress in the work environment. Over the last 27 years, Sharon has worked with over 41,000 people through training sessions, consulting, coaching, and keynote speeches. And Sharon's been a great coach to me in some of my language. And every time she's on, she's teaching me something new. Sharon, I'm so glad to welcome you back. (laughs) Wow. Thanks, Dave. Such a thrill to be back. And thank you for that wonderful and generous introduction. Uh, My pleasure. I I hope this is obvious from the context of our conversation. But, you know, I'm I'm really conscious of the fact that, you know, our aim here is not to just, you know, (laughs) keep people from getting caught. That's not the aim. The aim is how do we engage in the kinds of behaviors or stop the kinds of behaviors that aren't just going to damage your reputation, but are going to make the workplace uncomfortable. That's why these, you know, these things have emerged. And so hopefully we can frame that in such a way where we're really thinking about this from a really holistic perspective of how do we create the kind of workplace we want, as I know you've you've done so brilliantly in your work, Sharon. As we were preparing for this conversation, I, I shared with you that one of the things that happened to me early on in my career was I was I think I was two or three years into my career, and I had just received a major promotion into a new role. And I remember showing up for work one morning, and our region manager was coming in that day. And he came in, we had some conversation, and he pulled me into a room. And he said, before you go further, there's something you need to know. You need to stop hugging people. And I was like, <laughs> what? Like, where did this come from? And he, it was a very short conversation. Um, I can still remember it, like 20 years. I, mean, I sort of feel like the agitation of like even talking about this. And he said, now that you're in this role, 
He's like, you should have been doing it before, but now that you're in this world, you really need to be conscious of you're doing a lot of hugging people in the workplace, and people are going to potentially read that the wrong way. I don't think anyone had said anything. I think it was probably triggered by the position move. I don't know. Maybe there was, someone had said something. But I remember at the time feeling like, oh my gosh, <laughs> feeling this whole level of guilt about it. But looking back, that was really, really valuable feedback at the time because I had never thought about it. And I think that's going to lead in our conversation, Sharon, of just how often sometimes we just don't think about the things that we do in our daily behaviors that other people may not necessarily interpret the way we intend or don't intend. Exactly. And, and if what we accomplish today, Dave, is to be for your listeners what your regional director was for you 20 years ago, if we're able to highlight for your listeners the areas that they should think about that are probably places where they're not connecting the dots between the changes in the world around us and what that translates into in their daily actions, how they conduct themselves, and what risks they perceive to their standing, to their reputation, even to holding on to their job. If that's what we accomplish today to be that regional director, then I will be beyond happy. I'll think we did a really good day's work together. Yeah. Well, a good starting point then for us is on context. And I know you think about context a lot in your work. And there's three contexts in particular that are important for us to be mindful of when we're handling some of these situations. Could, could you walk us through those different contexts? Yes. For every leader, the good manager, there are always three kinds of contexts that by their very nature pose some level of risk and require some thought about how you're going to manage yourself. So today is less about how to be a good manager and more about how to be a little more protective because you're not going to be a good manager if you're busy with complaints that are lodged about you, even though you all you did was going about doing good work. So the first contexts that we should think about are routine contexts. This requires us to think about how we say hello in the morning, what are the things that on a daily basis we interact, conduct ourselves with people, manage our responsibilities? Uh, so how do we manage ourselves in our routine context? And the strategy here is cultivate. Cultivate your practices and your reputation as a kind, uh, thoughtful, equal, fair, and just leader. That's your routine context. The second context, are sensitive contexts. And these are situations that by their very definition are more sensitive. And this could be the classic that we should talk about that's always been there, is when you have to performance manage an employee. So someone who is not performing as they should, and you are now looking much more closely at what they're doing, you're monitoring more closely. This by definition is a sensitive context because a person is very likely to think that you're ramming into them. They're more likely to lodge a complaint. They might feel that it's because of who they are or because of that race or religion. It could be anything. So that, by definition, you're prone to the bullying complaint, the harassment complaint. Another classic sensitive definition is when you are dealing with a union representative, a union steward, who is not doing their job properly or is engaging in other behaviors, 
And if you're going to start managing that, there's a strong likelihood that it'll become a union management issue. So, so these are the sensitive contexts, and a lot more in today's world falls under this sensitive context. In sensitive contexts, what you want to do is calculate, be much more careful about what you're doing. You might want to go first to your manager to cover your own back, to say, I'm going to be doing this. You might want to go to human resources and get their perspective. You might want to read the policies more carefully. You have to be much more calculated so that this doesn't end up, while you're doing your managerial leadership job, it doesn't end up being a risk to you. And the last context is problem contexts where you've already made, made a, a, you've created a problem yourself. You said the wrong thing. You, you did the wrong thing. And here the strategy would be compensate, go and fix it. As I think about these three contexts, Sharon, I've absolutely been in all three multiple times in my career, and I'm sure most of the people listening are. And if they haven't, uh, certainly you, you will face a problem context if you haven't already. One of the things that I'm really curious about is in the era of Me Too and so much that has come out in organizations in the media in the last couple of years, what is different today? The world now, we're in the Me Too era. That's one huge change that managers should think about. We are in the area where our understanding of gender is completely transforming from day to day. It's no longer a he-she world. There's now many more expressions of gender. And then it's also the whole area of diversity and cultural diversity and other types of diversities, including disabilities and all of those things and how managers now need to understand these risks and understand that it's not only about being a good manager, it is also about protecting your reputation and standing. A lot of things that used to be routine that you didn't need to think about, that you just needed to be a good manager and a fair and just and, and inclusive manager, a lot of things now have moved into the sensitive context realm. And nowadays, people have a lot of sensitivities that they did not have before, Nowadays, more organizations are making it clearer that employees can come forth with complaints, that they welcome those complaints, here's the complaint procedure, and so more people are prone to complain, and the error, the arena of sensitive context has just become vastly larger. It's crucial that you begin making the linkages between what you're reading in the newspapers and what it means to you in the way you show up in your workplace tomorrow as a leader. There are, of course, the examples out there of really, really bad behavior. We've seen a lot of them in the media. And I think that is a very different kind of conversation. What I have often seen and run into, not only in my own career, but in, in working with clients over the years, is we do something by habit for whatever reason, either it's the family we grew up in, it's the era we grew up in and, and began our work uh, in, it's the culture, the organization, or a past organization, and we don't even think about it or even have any awareness about it until something happens that we go, oh, and then all of a sudden you start to unravel this story that does not look good. That's right. And the interesting thing is, I think my last 
three clients that came for the sensitivity training, right in the first session, there's some big ahas for them. And the last three clients, all of them came in the second session and said, I can't believe it. I'm hearing and seeing everything in the office with these new glasses. I can't believe what's going on in the office. Mm-hmm. And some of it is just incivility, the eye rolling, the dab. But then he goes, the language that people are using, you know, and all three of them, it's kind of once they made that connection between how people in the office are not really managing themselves in accordance with the new world, the 2017, 2018, 2019 new world, it's like their whole hearing and seeing has changed. Indeed. And I am curious, you know, I know one of the things that you're very mindful of is what can leaders do proactively, uh, or in the cases, sometimes you're working with people in the problem context of, you know, retroactively, but um, what can we do proactively to raise our awareness level, but also to hopefully keep ourselves in those routine and sensitive contexts where we don't end up causing problems that we don't need to in the workplace? I think you hit with that word awareness. What you, that, that's the first point is becoming aware, becoming cognizant, that inner, inner work before it translates into behavior is just being aware that the world is changing. Uh, the pendulum is moving at, at a mind-boggling velocity. It may be moving at some point too far. We'll see. And maybe in some areas it's already moved too far and, and that's an area for another conversation. But to a large extent, these are many of these changes are very desirable. And so if we're to look at strategies, what's a manager to do? So the first strategy, and I think really a really key one, is to demonstrate openly that you are learning, that you're learning the new world, that you are trying to understand this world, this world that is changing, and that you are open to learning invite your team to teach you, to comment to you, to call you on things so that you can become more aware and more cognizant and practice more of the behaviors that are of the day, that are of the day. And part of this is to update your vocabulary. Our language is changing and there's no longer just he or she there is at the very minimum a uh, they. So I used to always in workshops, for example, when I do workshops on workplace and civility, I would give an example and I'd say, so what if he or she says da-da-da-da-da? Well, now I say, what if he, she, they say da-da-da-da-da? And I make it also, the first time that I do that, I make it very clear to the people in the room that I'm working on my language. I say it. I'm working on my language. And you might hear me sometimes correcting myself because I'm working on it. And I feel that by doing so, I'm making a lot of people in the room comfortable who may have, who are on some form of a journey or who have a family member who's on that journey. Mm -hmm. And I'm also being a model, teaching people that we do need to change our language. I'm not telling them to change their language necessarily, but by showing that I am. I am showing that I'm learning, and I sometimes say, this is the language of the day, and I'm trying to catch up. The language is changing. I don't know if a year from now the language will be the same, but I'm learning. And so for a manager just to have to show that they are learning and wanting to 
gets feedback so that they are up with the times is hugely important in terms of protecting your reputation as someone who is inclusive, etc. And I, I'm hearing a distinction in what you're saying, Sharon, between knowledge and behavior. And it's not enough just to be knowledgeable. It's really incumbent on a leader to take the next step to bring that into the behavior in the work that you're doing on daily interactions. Exactly. I'd like to actually give a very concrete example. So I had a client who loves accents, who is a regular Canadian and loves accents, does accents very well, and for years has been, you know, when someone speaks with an accent, they'll speak back to them in that accent. It's done lovingly. It's, it's just done in, in good humor and actually in a supportive and admiring way. Well, this client now was sent to me for sensitivity training following an incident. And I say to my clients, look, you're here. You really don't have many more strikes. You probably don't even have one more strike with the company. So let's make sure that you never get into trouble again. So we were talking about accents and my client said, well, I love the accents that I'm going to have to stop it. I said, right, you will. But what if you did by chance? imitate someone's accent, because it may happen. So my client said, well, I learned from you that apologizing is really important, because we had spoken about what goes into a good apology, what are the elements of a good apology. And I said, okay, show me. Well, how would you apologize? So my client's apology sounded something like, I'm really sorry, that was uncalled for. I shouldn't have done that. That could have a negative impact I'm really sorry, I'll never do it again, and so on. And I said, yes, the thing is, something is really missing out of that apology, because if you just did it like that, you still come off as a racist. That's the bottom, you still come off as a racist. What's missing from that apology? And what was missing from that apology is exactly to your point, Dave, is the piece about where I was coming from is that I love accents, I admire accents, and for years I was imitating accents as a supportive way. But a year ago, I stopped doing that completely. I cut that out from that, my vocabulary of behaviors because I realized it can be taken the wrong way. And oops, today it slipped out. Mm. So this is the show you're learning, right? So that changes it from I'm the racist to I already cut it out. I'm on the journey. I understand that the world has changed. I don't want to engage in practices that could be hurtful or upsetting, but oops, it came out. Because in my mind, the former lawyer's mind, I'm also thinking, if that person by chance didn't take well to the apology still, and still went to say, hey, I've been harassed, my accent was imitated, my client can still say, I literally stopped a year ago and I explained that I don't no longer do it. This was one of those things that slipped. The company's treatment of that would be very different than if my client was not showing that they're on a learning journey. Mm, interesting. One of the other places that you coach people on is practicing good hygiene. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you could I wonder if you could tell us more about that because I think the average person listening to this would think like, well, I have good hygiene. <laughs> Right. I brushed my teeth. I brushed my teeth. I took a shower today. When you were working with people on that, what do you mean? I mean that you need to be squeaky clean, that you don't hug, 
that you don't say to someone, beautiful haircut. And in fact, as a manager, honest to goodness, if you want to protect your reputation, don't even say, I notice your new haircut. Don't say even, it's not even about nice or not nice. Someone asks you, how does my dress look? Or did you not notice? You can jokingly say, mm, no comment. Or I'm glad if you like it. You know, just you really stay away from that. No swearing. You know, one of my abrasive clients, abrasive leader client, said to me before we started working and before I went to collect the data, I swear a little bit, but only with my own manager, which was the leader of the organization. I don't swear anywhere else. And I said, well, cut it out even with your manager because workplace civility and respect require that you should be prepared for anything that you do behind closed doors to show above the country, above the company's front entrance. Ask yourself, would this be okay to show on our front entrance two leaders swearing behind closed doors? My client was under the impression that they were only swearing with their own manager. When I went and interviewed people about the weaknesses and strengths of my client's interpersonal style as a way of bringing to my client what's in their blind spot, there were seven people who said that my client swears. And all these people, uh, most of them were people who reported to my client. Oh, interesting. In a routine context, you should not swear. You should practice good hygiene, not behind closed doors and not only with this one and not when it's safe. You clean it up. You clean it up. I'm guessing there are people thinking, okay, that, that's fine in most situations. That makes sense, especially if I don't know someone. But what about with the person that I've been friends with in the workplace for 15 years and it's just the two of us and we're just talking do I really have to be concerned in that situation? When you get that response, what do you say to people? I have all these little tests uh, from my days when I was doing more harassment work and less, and before I got really more uh, into incivility. I, I call it the mushroom test. Like, you know how mushrooms multiply after the rain? And ask yourself, what if the interaction that I'm thinking about would happen not just in one room, but in many rooms? So I'm sitting just with my friend that I'm 15 years and I'm comfortable. And then in the other room, someone else who knows someone for 15 years is also doing a little bit of that. And then that's also happening in a meeting room as people are wait, the two are waiting for a meeting to start and other colleagues to go. How would that look? What kind of organization would I have? What kind of work environment would that be? Would that be a productive work environment? Would that attract the younger generation? And so that's like mushrooms after the rain. If we multiply that in our mind's eye, what would we be getting? And as a leader, if you have even half a head on your shoulders, you say, you know what, that's not a good workplace. So I better stop right now what I'm already doing. We talk a lot about authenticity on the show, as you know, Sharon. And part of what, you know, I'm hearing a lot of that in what you've just said, too, of from a broad value of authenticity is I'm showing up. In every situation in the workplace, regardless of who's in the room, regardless of the context, I'm showing up in a way that's authentic and is the way I'd want to be perceived. And I'm, I'm hearing that consistency of authenticity as a part of this as well. You're, you're pointing to the nice and positive side and of the use of the word authenticity. I can't tell you the number of times that I hear about authenticity used differently a lot of managers find that employees come and employees who have a disagreeable way of conducting themselves in the workplace or who are chronically uncivil, and they say, well, I want to be my authentic self. I have the right to be my authentic self. No, you don't. 
you bring to the workplace the authentic parts of yourself that are agreeable, collegial, respectful, civil, and friendly. That's the parts of your authentic being that you can and should practice in the workplace. The other parts of your authentic self, anything from swearing to burping to whatever, (laughs) that's not for the workplace. And in the same way for leaders, if a leader says, well, I want to be authentic. You know, when I'm really upset or frustrated, I want to do that juicy swear word because that's the authentic me. And I say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And it's not only not a good thing for a leader, it's not the right thing, it's not a value-based thing. I also say, beware, it could get you into trouble. Why would you want to do something that if not today, in a year could get you into trouble? Why? Cut it out. It's better on all fronts. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Another area that you encourage people to think about is understanding your location. Tell me more about that. Some time ago, one of the people I worked with said they were about a year into their first leadership position, and they said, the thing that was the most surprising to me when I became a leader was how closely everything I did was watched and scrutinized. Mm. And that's very profound, because you can't just do things, and maybe that's where your regional manager came from when he was saying to you at the time, as an employee, it was fine to be touchy like that. But now you're a manager, it's a different viewpoint that people have on you. And so when you say a little swear word and you're a manager and you didn't understand that your location makes people watch you more carefully, you're prone to be more in trouble. If you're not going to practice inclusion, and you're going to be more friendly with some people, that is going to come potentially to bite you. So anything that you do could potentially trigger, either trigger a complaint or may not trigger a complaint, but a complaint may be lodged about something else that you did. And then suddenly all these little habits that you did were brought now into context. And now there's a whole pattern of which you are held accountable for and you're that manager and you're saying, what happened? One day everything was great and the next day I feel like there's an indictment against me. I, I was never this bad. I, 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 and I would say that's the most common response that I get from my, my the clients who are sent for sensitivity training or coaching is this shock and dismay and shame where really all they failed to do was connect the dots between what's happening in the changing environment and world around us and between the implications that that has for how they conduct themselves in the workplace. So part of this is being mindful of the role that we have within the organization. And and I'm also hearing you say just what the power dynamics are too of thinking about, you know, do I have more power in this particular situation, this context, um, this political environment within the organization, because people are going to behave differently around you if you have more influence. And there's things that you may not hear as openly as you would if you weren't in that situation. Exactly. And whereas in the past, and I'm talking now even in the past of 
30, 40 years ago when people came into the workplace, they assumed that the people in power, whether it was just the supervisor of three people or, of course, higher-ups, the people in power had a lot of privilege that came with power and just lived with it as the person lower on the totem pole. Nowadays, many more people are aware of power dynamics. There are more language phrases and language terms to describe that. And people are more sensitive to abuse of power, especially in organizations. Power is not, power is not what it used to be. <laughs> and uh, you, people assume now that you can't abuse and you need to use your power for the good and use it legitimately. Sharon, I so appreciate all your wisdom, and I hear the complexity that you bring in your work of handling a very difficult topic. In the spirit of showing our learning, I thought, since you've been on the show before and we've talked about failure and what you've changed your mind on previously, I thought it might be interesting just for both of us to share, what are we working on right now in this way of thinking about our own language and thinking about how we show up in the professional space. So I'm I'm curious for you when you think about uh, the place we are today in this new era. What is it right now that you're working on today to be more mindful of your learning and growth? I would say the first thing that comes to mind is the thing that I mentioned earlier. I'm really working on language. I've been on this earth for a number of decades. I've used language in certain ways that refers to gender. My mindset was, generally speaking, that there were two genders, and so my language, of course, reflected that. And I am working on that, especially when I stand in front of people, so less in the one-on-one, but really in front of groups, is to keep managing my language. And it is an ongoing effort, and I'm really doing my best on that front. Mine is very similar to yours in thinking about language and gender. I have for years, as I know many others have, have used the term you guys. (laughs) And I'm realizing that not only, A, is that not the most professional term, it's a little casual, but it's also not, not reflective of the audiences that I'm speaking to, because almost never am I speaking to all guys. And you and I were actually talking about this earlier before we started recording this conversation, Sharon, and I I made the comment to you, or I think you said, you know, when would you still use the term you guys? And I said, well, if I was literally having a conversation with only guys, and then you asked me, well, how do you know you're really only talking to guys in a room? How do you really know? (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) you know what? That's great coaching for me because I probably I should never use that term. And so it's just one of those things that I think has become a part of our cultural language. And it's interesting, as I've started working on this, I've noticed that there are as many women as men who use the term you guys, uh, at least I notice it, both yes. with women and men. And so it's it's interesting that this is such a part, at least here in the States, it's such a part of our lexicon as far as how we communicate casually. But I am realizing that that is a term that... Um, that is not reflective of inclusivity. And so I'm working on that, and I still catch myself doing it often. And those of you who I interact with live, especially our academy members, please call me on it when you hear me doing that, because that's something that I'm working on in my language and realizing that what we broadly thought of as maybe 
perfectly acceptable language in years past is no longer acceptable language and probably shouldn't have ever been acceptable language, but just, you know, we didn't think about it. I love what you said, Dave, because you just demonstrated exactly what we were talking about. You showed your learning, you showed that you are learning, and you invited people to give you honest feedback. And that's what it's about. We're in a huge learning moment, both in the large community, society, and in the workplace, and in the journey of a leader. And you just demonstrated that you're showing that you are learning, that you're making the effort, that just as you conquered one terrain, okay, I'm only going to say, I'm not going to say you guys, and I'm only going to keep it to guys, groups, the minute you cover that terrain, oops, the next thing to, to master appears, which is how do you know that they're guys? And inviting people to tell you, and thereby making it comfortable for everyone in any interaction that you have, and making it, frankly, more safe for you, more safe for you personally, in terms of your success and career, etc. Well, Sharon, thank you so much oh. for your coaching. I just always appreciate your willingness to make very complex and difficult situations easier to talk about. Thank you so much for that gift, and I so appreciate you taking the time to do that. Well, thank you, Dave, for, as always, being such a profoundly curious and uh, wise and wonderful interviewer. Thank you for inviting me and for having this conversation. Sharon Bard-David is the author of Trust Your Canary, Every Leader's Guide to Taming Workplace Incivility. Thanks, Sharon. Several past episodes will be helpful to you if you found today's conversation useful. One of them is episode 210, How to Tame Workplace Incivility. Sharon was my guest on that episode as well. We talked about her work in helping leaders to prevent incivility in the workplace, including how we use language and how we maybe choose not to use some of the language many of us have become accustomed to, including things like calling our colleagues and the workplace team a family and why we may want to avoid some of that language. Uh, That's episode 210. Also useful will be episode 290. Sharon also joined me on that episode talking about how to manage abrasive leaders. As I mentioned early on, Sharon really has an expertise in that. And in that conversation, she walked us through her three steps of advice for us when we find ourselves in that situation, leading someone who themselves is an embraceive leader and how we can really uh, begin the process of helping them to recognize and change their behavior. This is an episode I refer to a lot, especially when this comes up in our academy conversations. Uh, Anytime someone is talking about a difficult person they're managing who is also making things difficult for the people they're managing, this is almost always a first recommendation, and many people have found these three steps in episode 290 to be useful. If you find yourself in that situation, I'm, I'm so sorry for it, and 290 will be a good place for you to start. Also valuable to you is episode 254, Use Power for Good and Not Evil. Dacker Keltner was my guest on that episode. He is the founder of the Greater Good Center at Berkeley and has done a ton of research on power. And one of the sad and unfortunate conclusions of that research and many of the other research that's been done on power dynamics in organizations is that the more power and influence that we get, the less empathetic we are. 
That's the bad news. The good news is if you recognize that, there's a lot you can do to prevent uh, having less empathy in the organization. Episode 254 is a good starting point for you and also a great complement to today's conversation. And finally, I'd recommend episode 307, How to Make Inclusion Happen. Deepa Pershathaman was my guest on that episode. She's a partner at Deloitte and talked about some of the steps that Deloitte has taken to do some innovative things around inclusion in recent years. If your organization or you are thinking about that in a strategic way, episode 307 is a great starting point for you. And you can get access to all of those past episodes and every other episode that's been aired since 2011 by going over to the coachingforleaders.com website. And you can reach all the past episodes by going to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. And if you haven't already set up your free membership, it'll prompt you to do that when you go to that link. And you'll be able to search all of the past episodes by topic. And in addition, you're going to get access to my entire library of information online, all of the book notes, immediate access to my free course, 10 10 ways, if I can talk, (laughs) 10 ways to empower the people you lead. It's a 10-day audio course. If you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, it'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. Coachingforleaders.com is where to go for that. Set up your free membership. You'll also get access to the weekly leadership guides that come every Wednesday. And next week, I am glad to welcome back Bonnie to the show for our monthly Q&A show. If you've got a question you'd like us to consider, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. Get it in to be considered for next episode. Have a wonderful week and see you for our next conversation next Monday. Take care.